continuing our series in Becoming His Church. And this week we're, we're in chapter 18. And we're still, Paul's still on his second missionary journey. And last week he was in Athens. This week he's going to go to Corinth. Let's read here in chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So we find Paul here in in Athens, and, and as we talked about last week, the first century Rome has so many parallels to 21st century America. We sometimes think like our culture is so unique. It's never, you know, the church has never been in this situation before. And there is a sense where that's true. And we talked about it. We live in a post-Christian society. This is a pre-Christian society. But the society itself is very similar And what's happening slowly to them is what is in much bigger play for us. And what's slowly happening for them is more and more people are hearing about Christianity, but they're not hearing about it from Christians. They're hearing about it from either rumors that just spread, or they're hearing about it from people who are pretending to be Christians because they see somehow there's a benefit if they present themselves as Christians. And what's happening now is that before 
Paul or anybody else even gets to a place, there's already this perception of, of what Christians are, what they believe, what they do. This, this morning, you know, part of the beginning of, of Sunday school, you know, Helene brought up this person who's, who's using the name of Jesus to promote this healing, um, you know, something I really didn't really, haven't really studied at all, but it's promoting this kind of form of healing, of using this kind of light, the scalar light to heal you, and that he claims this comes from Jesus. And rightfully, we should be upset when people are using Jesus' name that way to take advantage of people. We shouldn't be shocked. It's been going on for 2,000 years. We even read about attempts of it in the book of Acts. But it's out there. But far more problematic than the wrong notions of Christianity that come from people outside the church or people trying to, to use Christianity or use the church to profit or to benefit. What's far worse, it's far more difficult to overcome, is when so many Christians are very comfortable with a very shallow understanding of what Christianity is. When they treat Christianity almost like, it's almost like a superstition, but it's a superstition dressed up in Christian words. And what happens is so many people 2,000 years ago, so many people today, they will reject Christianity because they think it's naive. They think it's naive at best. They may have worse things to say about it, but at best, they think it's naive, and they think Christianity is naive because they think Christians are naive. They think Christians don't really understand the depths of the problems that are facing our world. That Christians simply understand that if you just pray and you just believe, all the problems of the world will go away. That if you just pray and you just believe, then, you know, every problem in your life will go away. There's a, there's a belief by people outside here that sadly is rooted in some truth. But what we hope you are getting, and I think I don't want to insult you because I know many of you already knew this, all right? But what we are trying to communicate from the gospel, or we're trying to communicate from God's word, is that the opposite is true. That God's word understands more deeply than anyone else in the world what the problems are in this world. That God is not simply trying to deal with each of our lives and trying to help our lives be better and help our marriages be better and help us have better families or help us have you know, material success. That that's not really talking about the depth of what Scripture is. Scripture communicates to us the depth of the sin problem. That the sin problem is so deep that we don't even recognize it anymore. 
We have covered it over with layers of other things that actually look and sound good, but still at its core is sin. It doesn't matter how many layers you put. It doesn't matter how you dress things up. There's still, at its heart, the issue is sin. A Christian understands that that's not just something that affects my life or affects your life, but that it, it, it's infected the entire world. That the world is marked by people fighting over the same resources, wanting things for their own possession, their own survival, and after they've secured survival, they still are driven by that same spirit to go even more, just because they can. Christians, true Christians, Christians that want a deep understanding of what is going on in this world and what the Bible has to say about it, they know that. They cannot be accused of being naive. But unfortunately, Christianity has been pretty much put on the side in public discourse. You don't have presidential candidates debating, you know, and using Christian beliefs, they're just ignored. Because you know what, that's a private matter, according to the prevailing American view. We don't think about even problems like poverty and homelessness. We don't think about them from, from a gospel-centered Christian perspective. We just think about them just like the rest of the world does. And that's how the world wants to solve all these problems. Paul confronted that in Athens. He just came from Athens where he's, he's entertained in a way, like, hey, let's go get this, let's get this crazy guy to come talk to us so he'll entertain us with his wild new beliefs. And he does it. And a few people respond. But the way that Luke tells the story, most people in Athens do not. So Paul knows this. Paul knows this, but Paul doesn't care. Because Paul was going to share the gospel regardless of what the world thinks. If the world thinks he's naive, if the world thinks he's foolish, if the world thinks he's simplistic, he doesn't care. He's going to share with them the gospel. He's going to share that this perfectly good and all-powerful and loving God created all things. And he especially created humanity, and he, and he created humanity in his own image. And what did we do with all the blessings that God gave us? We said, not good enough. And we rebelled against him. And we went our own way. Paul is going to share the whole gospel 
we rejected God. We rejected all his goodness, all his blessings, and we said we're going to do it on our own. We're going to figure it out on our own. We're going to create civilizations, societies. We're going to do it all, all on our own. And we're so proud of what we've done. And yet what history tells us again and again is shipwreck after shipwreck of great civilizations. They all fall. A thousand years from now, will the United States of America be thought of like the Roman Empire or like the Ugaritic Empire? You're like, I heard of the Romans. I didn't hear of the Ugaritics. That's my point. At one point, they were the most powerful in the world. And you hear about one, and you don't know the other. The world wants to do it its way and is very proud of all of its accomplishments, but they all end the same way. Somebody more powerful comes along and takes over, or those in power can't hold it together and it falls apart. We can't help ourselves. When we rejected God, we became enslaved to sin. We became enslaved to the ways of this world. And it would seem hopeless. It would seem dark. Because the Bible makes really clear, this same Paul will write in the book of Romans, we cannot save ourselves. We could not. No matter how good, no matter how hard we try, we cannot. And in the midst of despair, the Savior comes. This is the gospel that Paul preaches. This is the gospel that we see in this world. I mean, we see in this word, it's the gospel that we should preach. God sent his son. He comes here. He lives among us. He dies for us. But we sometimes race past his death. And again, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, and we've talked about it before. But while he's hanging on the cross, and this is the thing that makes Christianity seem so foolish to the world. While he's hanging on the cross, if you saw the leader of any other movement, the leader of any other kingdom being executed, you would immediately think, great failure. But the Bible says, no, on the cross, Jesus Christ reveals who he is, reveals who God is, reveals the nature of his kingdom more fully than it could ever have been revealed. He is hanging on the cross. People are hating him. They're openly mocking him. They've been torturing him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. This great love pours out. Love that I know I do not have on my own. Love that I know none of us could generate. Oh, we might fake it. We might say the words. But while his enemies are torturing and killing him, he can think of nothing else but that God would forgive them. 
But his death not only displays the great love and the great power of who God is, but his death does pay the penalty for our sins. His death does offer to us that we can be in that same kingdom, that we can live in that same way, that we could overcome the selfishness and pride and sin in our lives where we could love in the way that only God can love, that we can be made new. And the resurrection seals it. This is the gospel. And it's not just for you, it's not just for me. God didn't come to save individuals. He came to establish his kingdom. It was never going to be a kingdom of one. Anybody who tells you that if Jesus could look through time from the cross and he only knew one person would come to faith, he still would have died on the cross, they don't understand their Bible. Jesus never came just to save one person or a collection of one persons. He came to establish his kingdom. This is the gospel. This is the only hope. If you're not a student of human history, as Christians, we need to be. I love history. I love to see great achievements that human beings have done. I'm not going to lie. I love that part about it. But I also understand that human history shows Humanity can try to establish what it thinks is a good society, and it always falls apart. Christianity offers the hope. There's a depth to it that we need to understand. You see, in all the attempts in the past 30, 40 years, so many people, well-meaning people, by the way, I don't ever want you to think when I talk about somebody else that I ever am questioning their faith or anything else. But there have been so many attempts to make church and make the gospel more attractive. And what that usually means is, is simplifying it. Understand, there is something very simple about the gospel. I mean, I just shared with you the gospel in like three or four minutes. There's something simple about the gospel. But when we try to simplify the gospel to make it more attractive, what ends up happening is we portray Christianity as useless. It's useless. Yeah, it's a nice belief. Yeah, if you want it, you can have it. Yeah, if it's going to help you get through life, that's great. But it's not really useful in dealing with the big problems of the world. It's just for your own personal issues. I taught Bible at a Christian school once, and the Christian, I was criticized. It was a high school, and I was criticized because I dared to make the Bible class as rigorous as the other academic classes. I'm not kidding. I was criticized for it. I was told, like, you know, you, you need to make it so that it's, you know, it's, like, it's, it's kind of like really easy and simple for the kids. 
Don't give them projects. Don't give them exams. You know what I know the kids picked up on that at this Christian school? You know what they, they all learned? Physics is important enough that it's hard. Chemistry is important enough that it's hard. English, history, important enough that it's hard. But Bible is so bubblegummy, chewy, it's just a good, fun time. And they never, in that opportunity, were going to have the opportunity to be able to wrestle with how Christianity has and how Christianity can and will address the deepest problems in this world. We look at this text, we find Paul, and he's, he's you know, this missionary journey, as we talked about before, wasn't what he expected. He never meant to go to Europe. He only went to Europe because God made him. And then he gets there and all of these amazing things are happening. But also all these tough things are happening. The pattern has been like he shows up at a city. He goes to the synagogue if there is one. People start responding. Then he starts to get persecuted and rejected. And then he leaves. And usually he's in a city for a matter of weeks. That's been the pattern. But Paul's good with that. Paul knows like, okay. Let's go to the next place. Let's go to the next place. Let's go to the next place. And if you remember, in Athens, he was all by himself. This is the only time in the book of Acts where we find Paul all by himself. Every other point, he has other members of his team with him, but he's all by himself in Athens. And then he travels to Corinth, and he's still all by himself. And I think that the way Luke tells the story, and we have to remember that when we read stories, we just see stories. But when, when people from the ancient Near East told stories, they told stories to teach us, not just to tell us a story. And the way Luke tells this story, Paul doesn't have a resounding success in Athens. Some people believe, but you never hear about Paul writing a letter to the church at Athens. You don't you know, have Paul wanting to go back or praying for the church at Athens. Who knows what happened in Athens, but at that moment in time, Paul leaves Athens probably with some mixed feelings, and he's alone, and he's about to go to Corinth, and you can imagine it would be easy to be discouraged. Here also, as we read down in in verse 6, here, when he goes to the synagogue and he starts teaching, this is the most opposition he's ever had. Usually, it says, Luke says something like this. Some of the Jewish people believed, many of the Gentiles believed. Or, it'll say, many of the Jewish believed, and many of the Gentile people believed. Some means, eh, not that many. Many means lots. It was great. It was awesome. Well, here, he doesn't say some or many. It doesn't mean that not any were listening, but the overwhelming majority of the Jewish people, and they were largely men in the synagogue, were not just not receiving, but they were rejecting Paul and reviling him. They were mocking him. 
That's what's coming. And he's been all alone. He's going to be attacked by a mob again and dragged before the proconsul. And he's seen this before. He knows how this turns out. It's usually not that great. In the midst of this part of his life, God blesses him. Luke writes it right in the middle of this, right before he's about to face the next level of trials, but right after being all alone in Athens and coming to Corinth and not knowing anybody in Corinth. And then it says, he found a Jew named Aquila. He found a Jew named Aquila who was only there. He and his wife Priscilla were only there because they had been forced out of Rome because there had been a disturbance probably between the, the, the Jewish people and the Christians in Rome that the emperor said, get all those guys out of here. They're only there because of that. And Paul meets them. And oh, by the way, they're not just Jewish. They're not just Jewish people who, who are from a Gentile background and who also are believers they're also tent makers. They share the same trade as Paul. What's God doing for Paul here? I think Luke makes it clear the fact that he includes this is because God is providing Priscilla and Aquila at the right time to encourage Paul. And I think that's what God does for us. God provides other believers at the right time to encourage his church. Sometimes I find things by accident. So I started doing something a couple weeks ago and then John said he thought it was a good idea so I kept doing it. Okay, so um, if it runs its course, John, I'm gonna blame you. Um, But it's like, okay, so, so what? That's what he says about Paul. That's what we realize about the church. What's our action point? What should I do with that information? I don't know all that you should do, but I know this in general. That we need to be present in each other's lives. If we're going to be his church, we need to be present in each other's lives. There's, there's too much Christianity where we keep, nobody had to teach Baptists to social distance. We were doing it way before it was cool. We could have 50 people in this church and they would be spread out across the entire 400 seat area. We, we like to keep each other close, but not too close. Kind of this safe distance. We, you know, don't mind coming to a worship service or Bible study or something like that. But if we're the body of Christ, are we really present in each other's lives? How often do we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ from Sunday to Sunday? How often do we pray for them? 
How often, how, how often do we think like how we can take advantages of every opportunity we can to be together? Do we think about their struggles and their needs and maybe how God might have uniquely equipped us to meet those needs? But I'm not even talking at, even about doing anything. I'm simply talking about being present. If COVID has taught us nothing else, it's taught us how a lot of Christians don't like other Christians and we're perfectly happy to stay home. I'm not talking about those of you who are still home, who need to be home. I, I, I get it. You, if you have compromised health, if there's, or if you're caring for somebody like that, I get it. I understand it. But how easy it was for us, for some of us, to give in to the convenience of not being together. By the way, it also taught me this, that a lot of you, if not most of you, are amazing because you wanted to be together. And you were like, as soon as you felt like, you know, either your, your, your health wasn't compromised or, or that, that, you know, the person you're caring for's health wasn't compromised, you were here and you're present. You know, I remember in Hawaii, when I grew up in Hawaii, and then the first time I went to the mainland, I went to a college student Christian conference on the mainland, and there were 3,000 young people all singing, and it was amazing. I'd never heard it before. I know some of you, we kind of joked about this at the beginning of COVID. You know, we said, if you're home, sing the worship songs. Stand when we say Stand. Open your window so your neighbors can hear, right? And that's awesome. It's great. But there's something amazing when all of us are gathered together and we're all lifting up one voice together. I love that our worship teams, our worship leaders are, are incorporating more and more where up here is not dominating, your voices are dominating. They're still leading, but we can hear the congregation, lifting up one voice. There's a blessing in just being together. And I think it's lost on the modern church. A modern church is just, it's a thing. I come and I do it once a week. I do my thing and I move on. That comes from a naive, shallow Christianity. How are we going to show the world the difference Jesus Christ makes in our lives if he hasn't even made the difference that we even care to be together at the simplest level. It's a witness. Your, your mere presence is a blessing. Oh, I hope for more than presence, right? I hope for participation. I hope for people taking positions of leadership and service. But just your presence. It's encouraging to me. It's a blessing to me. The second thing we see is Paul, this, as soon as the vast majority of the 
people in the synagogue say, basically, don't come back here. And Paul's like, okay, all you guys, I've been here several times. I've shared. I've taught. I've answered your questions. I've dialogued with you. All right, it's done. And now he's going to go to the Gentiles. But it's kind of interesting here. He doesn't do what happened in all the other cities. He doesn't leave. In other cities, he left. Here, he goes next door. He goes to this guy's house next door. And he continues to teach. And then something even more amazing. You might even think it's miraculous. Crispus is the ruler of the synagogue. So while Paul was teaching, he was the ruler. He was one of the rulers, if not the head ruler at that time. And he's Jewish. And he's listening. And he's also seeing his fellow Jewish people, you know, brothers, attacking Paul, how they're acting. And he sees Paul and how Paul's responding. And when Paul moves next door, Crispus goes with him. Crispus believes in the Lord. Crispus had every reason to say, okay, good, all right, well, he's gone. But God does this amazing thing and brings to the Lord the most unlikely person. It's awesome. And it's not just Crispus, it's his entire household. And then it says, many of the Corinthians, they believed too, and they were baptized. This incredible breakout of people becoming Christians takes place, and it takes place because Paul doesn't do what he had done in the other cities. As soon as rejection comes, he's like, okay, I'm moving on to the next city. Here, he's like, no, I'm going next door. Paul, Paul found a way. And that's something that we can learn. That if we're going to be his church, we find a way to minister even when the world tries to block the way that, that we usually do, that we always do, we think makes the most sense. If the way is shut, we don't just go, all right, I guess we'll just close it up. We're done. No, it's amazing. Crispus, his household, the Gentiles, the miracle Paul would have missed if he had moved on to the next city prematurely. And notice all this happens before the vision. He finds a way. And that's what we need to do too. Right now, we live in a society where, you know, some doors are closed to us, but, but really, we, we have great opportunity to minister and to share. But should those doors ever be shut, will we continue to find a way? The action point I have here is that what Paul does is he focuses on ministry. He focuses on opportunities to minister, and that's what we should do. We shouldn't focus on the opportunities that are blocked. If they're blocked, they're blocked. But let's say, okay, if the gospel cannot go this way, 
where can the gospel go? God, show us. And I'll give you something that's very simple. And I'm going to tell you, I used to pray this a lot. And then I got, you know, I wasn't backslidden, but I stopped praying it as much as I should. And I want to pray it more. And I encourage you every morning when you get up, even if you're just lying in your bed and you're doing like thing that's happening to me as I become an old man, get up at four, can't go back to sleep, oh gosh, um, you'll know what that's like someday. Um, pray. And one of your prayers should be this simple prayer. God, show me opportunities to minister today. Show me opportunities. Give me opportunities. I want to start this day focused, looking for how God is saying, right here, somebody. You know, I shared with you one of my failures of missing an opportunity to share with someone a few weeks ago. And this isn't necessarily a great success, but it was different because I was having a lunch and the most unexpected thing happened in this kind of, it was a business lunch. And in the middle of this business lunch, the guys asked me this question. And I shared this a little bit with you guys last week, I think. He, he, he asked me this question, what do you think's wrong with the world today and how do we fix it? Hello, you just gave the wolf a steak. You know, like he's, I wanted, it was such a great opportunity and he was so receptive to hearing. I shared with him many, much of what I just shared with you at the beginning of this message. But pray every morning that God will give you opportunities to minister. Have the attitude, not just in the morning, but all day, of looking for opportunities to minister, whether it's just helping somebody. Sometimes it's just a kind word. Sometimes it's just thanking somebody. Sometimes it's just recognizing you see a mom with a difficult kid, and sometimes it's like, hey, I love how you handled that. Sometimes it's more. Sometimes it is sharing the gospel. Sometimes it is praying with someone about the deep needs in their lives. Look for opportunities. Paul's vision he gets from God. The vision, you know, God brings this vision because Paul needs it. Whenever Paul gets a vision, it's because he needs it. And so he gets this vision from God and the vision tells him, don't be afraid, which means Paul was probably about to be afraid, or he already was. Go on speaking and do not be silent, which means Paul was probably thinking about, maybe it's time to leave now and go to the next place. And he, the vision reminds Paul, this incredible man of faith, this man who had already suffered more for his faith than any of us or all of us collectively ever will suffer, this incredible man of faith is reminded, I am with you. I'm with you. I got you. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. Because in this city, there are many who are my people. Do we believe that? As a church, do we believe that God has in this city Many people who are not believers, but they're God's people 
that he wants us to be going out to reaching? Or do we just think it's all kind of random? You know, share my faith, hopefully someone responds. But he gets this vision exactly when he needs it. You see, we don't always know how God is working, but we should have great confidence, as Paul is reminding, that God has prepared the way for His church. God has prepared the way for His church. We often ask, like, what is God's will for my life? And we think, like, God has prepared a way for our lives. Yes, that's true. But He's also prepared a way for this church. And I'm going to tell you that while we don't always know it and we cannot always see it, what we should know and what we do need to try to understand, which becomes really the first level action point here, is that we need to have a better understanding, not just of how the gospel changes your life or my life, but how the gospel can transform the world, how it can save the world. Why is that so important? Because it helps us contextualize what is happening. It helps us know that if we faithfully serve for the next 30 years and not one person comes to Christ, but we faithfully serve, we faithfully share the gospel, we don't compromise the truth. You know, we change the things we need to change. If the carpet's the wrong color or, you know, the building or whatever else, we change all the things that need to be changed, but we uncompromisingly live out the truth and we see no converts we still know God's got a plan. Because when we don't know and we cannot see, all we can do is to be faithful in what we know. And that really leads us to the last point. And the last point that we see where, where Paul is brought before Galileo, and Galileo is the governor and he could, you know, have Paul thrown into prison. He could have him, you know, a lot of things happening to Paul. He could bring him in trial. But it's interesting what Galileo says. And he seems to be smart. He seems to be really smart, really perceptive. Because in verse 14 it says, but when Paul was about to open his mouth. Everybody who knows Acts knows that when Paul speaks to an angry mob, he only makes them angrier. And Galileo seemed to sense that. He's like, shut up. I'm about to let you go. And so Galileo speaks, and he basically says, the matter between you Jewish people, you guys handle this. But they all knew that any handling of it could not lead to unrest. Otherwise, Galileo would get involved, and he would do what happened up in Rome and many of them would be forced from the city. Understand that even though we are called to be relentlessly, relentlessly loving, relentlessly sharing the gospel, that the enemies of the church can also be relentless. And when the enemies of his church refuse to give up, when they draw the battle line, when they say no, 
when they say, we want to shut you down, how do we respond? We love them more. And we love them with the gospel. So Paul does. He obeys. He remains faithful. In fact, he stays here longer than he stayed at any other church up until this point. He stays for 18 months other than his home church of Antioch. Later on, he's going to stay in Ephesus for three years. And the action point is simply this. It's the same one we've had before. We need to know the gospel. We need to live the gospel. And we need to share the gospel. The more that the world might stand against his church, the more we need to know the gospel, live the gospel, and share the gospel. If you wait till persecution comes, it's too late. You will crumble. You will fall. We need to know it now. Ministry doesn't always have happy, sunshiny stories. There's ups and downs, and Paul's experienced them. But what Paul is relentless about is he's relentlessly faithful to the truth. Let us seek to be the same.